Amen. Well, let's turn together, if you would, to the 10th chapter of Matthew tonight, Matthew chapter number 10, and we'll continue our exposition of Matthew, specifically here in chapter 10, and dealing with the final verses of this chapter, verses 34 through 42. I want to draw our attention uh, tonight to verses 37 through 39. We'll read those uh, to begin, and then we'll be dealing with the verses around it, but I want to deal with these three verses as we begin. Our Lord spoke these words, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Obviously, we can see that there is an emphasis being placed on that expression, worthy of me. Now, we know our Lord is not talking about worthiness that is found in ourself or worthiness that's found in our own merits or our own righteousness, but our Lord is describing here the actions of a child of God, the actions of he who belongs in the kingdom of God, and how they are going to uh, not only live, but how they are going to interact in this world. Uh, these passages and the verses around this have often been viewed as um, some have unfortunately taken this to describe these are the verses that describe Christianity uh, as some sort of hateful religion because the Lord is using uh, words like not sending peace. He's using words about setting man at variance among. He's, he's, he's talking about not loving your father and mother more than him. He's talking about not loving your son or loving your daughter more than him. And he's, he, is, he is describing uh, something that is very, very important, but he is not teaching or preaching a message of hate. That is, that is not what's being said here. But we do know that before the Lord uses those, that expression of worthy of me, he has announced and given a, a very uh, quick overview of why he came, uh, why he came to this earth. And we see that back in verse number 30, uh, 34 there. He says, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. Now, we could misunderstand, and it would be very easy to misunderstand uh, what Jesus is actually saying here. Uh, oftentimes, we say Jesus spoke in a very plain manner. He spoke in a very clear manner. Uh, now, he did speak in parables so that his disciples and followers could understand. An unbeliever could not understand the parable. He's not speaking so much in a parable here, but he is speaking in a way of an expression about what his coming would do or what his coming would create. Now, he is not saying that he came here uh, to, uh, to, to simply just kill. He says he didn't come to send peace on the earth, but I came not to send peace, but a sword. Uh, Christ did come to make peace. He did come to reconcile the sinner unto himself. He did come to bring the peace of God. 
But ultimately what he is saying, especially in this day and in that, that time, and even now, is that his presence, his coming, would not create peace in everybody and in everything. In other words, his coming would create quite a stir. His coming would create almost what could be classified, and he uses the terminology here, a hatred. Uh, it is Christ did not come in the fact that it's his coming would not bring the world to a peaceful resolution. Uh, we look around the world and, and the events of recent days tell us how desperately we want peace, how desperately we want to see peace on this earth. Jesus Christ in, this, in his coming and now he did not bring peace uh, by the message he was bringing. We've been learning throughout Matthew 10 that persecution was going to come. Men were going to hate the disciples because they, are gonna, they hated Christ first. So he is he, the ultimate goal of his coming to earth, yes, is ultimately to bring pre peace upon the earth and reconcile uh, his children unto himself. So we see the context there. We see the context here is that he's talking about not his ultimate mission, but the now in which he came. So really what I want to do tonight is in most of these verses, I want to break these verses up into really three points each. Now don't panic. That doesn't mean we're going to have 50 points. It just means I'm going to break each verse up into a context, an exposition, and an application. Okay, so you'll have a context of verse 34, an exposition of verse 34, and then an application of it. So the context here is understanding what Jesus' actual words meant. Uh, he's not saying that he came to just destroy, but he is, he is saying that as he came, at that time, he came and his presence would bring, uh, it would bring uh, some division. Now, I think we could say when we look at these verses, uh, it's fair to say today that wherever Christianity comes, it will, cause a, it will cause a quarrel. It will cause some division. It will cause uh, people to, uh, to quarrel and to be angry with it because light and darkness can never be friendly together. Just like sin and righteousness can never dwell peacefully together. Uh, honesty cannot live with lies. So we cannot expect that where Jesus comes into a dark and sinful world, that there is going to be an immediate harmony between the servants of God and the servants of the devil or the servants of the enemy, the enemies of God. So that's where we really need to understand what the Lord's words here. Now, we do know ultimately, by way of application, we know that peace will ultimately one day come. Now, one day there will be perfect peace. There will be no more war. There will be no more rumors of war. Uh, there will no, be no more news announcements of another country invading another country. There'll, there'll be no more murder reports on the news. There'll be uh, no more kidnappings. There'll be no more abductions. It, this, this will all go away. There will be peace. But when the Lord comes, his, his coming does act as a sword. It acts as a sword as he wars against those things that are in opposition to him. Uh, he, his very presence, the very message of the gospel, uh, enrages people. Uh, it, it's amazing to me. Watch, listen to some of the missionaries around the world when they begin to introduce the gospel and it, it introduces rage and that people actually want to kill somebody because of the gospel. So we do know that truth will always provoke an opposition. And so 
all of these works that Jesus is speaking about here and what he's leading into uh, are demonstrating what his presence and what the message of the gospel uh, will ultimately do. Now, verse 35 and 36, he says, For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Contextually, that is always going to be the case. When you have Christ and the gospel come into a home uh, where the entire household is not a believer, uh, there is going to be variance. There's going to be division. Uh, it, is, it is going to create a natural opposition if you have a home uh, that is divided. If you have a home of half are believers and half are unbelievers, you better believe there's going to be some variance. Uh, that's going to be the natural result. But the coming of Jesus Christ here and what he again as he had come and he was writing or uh, was speaking these words and speaking to his disciples uh, he's he's explaining that his coming into a house is going to create a great disruption uh, animosities on the basis of religion have been going on for centuries you know most even even if you go back into the, the earliest recorded history some of the greatest wars that were ever fought were fought on the basis of religion they were based upon the the divisions that religion caused christ and the message of the gospel causes a division and it certainly will cause variance and he is saying that as he has come it has created this variance so what are we to do what are we to do if we are an individual who is in a home that is uh, marked by some who are believers, others who are not believers? Uh, we are to continue confessing Christ and continuing to stand for the gospel, even if it creates variance. Now, I know we are called to be peacemakers. We are called to, to keep the peace in our homes. And I'm not suggesting that we should provoke and we should enrage and we should do those things. But we also should not surrender what we believe. We should not give up our confession. We shouldn't say, okay, if, if this is going to cause so many problems, I'm just not ever going to talk about Christ. No, you have to continue to stand upon what you know and who you know, even though it may create variance. Uh, the idea that we are supposed to be Christians who are to look for peace at any price is not a biblical principle. Uh, there are people that it, even in the ecumenical circles of Christianity say, listen, let's just put everything aside for the sake of peace. We can't do that because there are things in our belief system by Jesus Christ that are going to naturally be in opposition. So we're not supposed to sacrifice that just for the cause of peace. But Jesus very clearly here says that there is going to be this problem. Fathers are going to be against daughters and daughters against the mothers and man against the father and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Uh, this, this even goes uh, further than just into uh, what we usually understand as our immediate homes. And it says there in verse 36, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. So even in his own home, uh, a man might find himself standing alone. He may be the only one standing. And then that leads us to the verses that we read as we began. 
He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Christ is supposed to be first in our life. Christ is supposed to be first above every earthly relationship. Above our marriages, above our children. Christ is supposed to be first. Jesus Christ is not saying that a that a person should not love their father and not love their mother, but he is saying that they should not love them more than me. They should not be their primary uh, recipient of love. Christ is supposed to be first. Christ claims and demands and is worthy of the highest place in our human heart. He He should have the preeminence. He should be the one who is in the highest place. And he that taketh, notice what he says, and he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Uh, There is such a thing as making idols of our family. There is such a thing of making our our, our spouses an idol. There are untold millions of examples where parents have made their children their idol. It's not that you're not supposed to love your kids. It's not that you're not supposed to love your spouse. But Christ is supposed to be first. You should love Christ more than you love your spouse and more than you love your kids. That's a, that is a mature principle to, to grab onto. It's not an easy principle to understand. As a matter of fact, there'll be people that will look at you cross-eyed if you tell them that you love Christ more than you love your spouse. And they'll say, what, are you having problems or something? No, this is the way it's supposed to be. And as a matter of fact, we will love our spouses and our children more rightly if we love Christ first and love Christ above all else, you won't truly love your wives and husbands until you love Christ rightly. You won't love your kids rightly until Christ is first. So we've got to be careful that we do not set our children or our spouses or family relations, whatever it might be, and make them even with our love for Christ. That's what Jesus was talking about. He's not saying you should hate your father, hate your mother, hate your kids. No, he's saying that they should not in one instance for one moment have, our, have love that is supreme over our love for Christ. That's The context, the exposition, the application of that all wrapped up in one. That's exactly what he's saying there. But this worthy of me, he mentions that twice in verse 37. Now we take this in context and we think about the variance that's being caused here by the message of Christ and what it causes. A disciple must love Christ supremely. The Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians chapter 3, if you turn over there for a moment, Paul makes mention of this supremacy. You know, he doesn't use necessarily the, the term love. But look at Philippians 3 and look at the first, first nine verses here. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord 
to write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. He counted everything in comparison, loss, to knowing the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. That was Paul's supreme goal. His supreme goal was to come into a complete knowledge or a perfect knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And so this worthy of me that uh, Jesus is using, this worthy of me is this principle that the, the disciple who does not love him supremely, does not make him the main object of their, their life, is not worthy of him. That's, that's the plain application of this. Our Lord then brings into, in verse 38, he brings into his own death. Now remember, the disciples don't have a full understanding of the cross. So when Jesus uses this illustration, and he says, and he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. We've got to keep in mind here, the disciples were not aware of the cross at this point. They were not aware of what the cross was going to mean. We've, we've made this, we've gotten this idea over years that the whole time the disciples were walking with Jesus, that he was telling them about the cross, he was explaining the crucifixion, he was explaining what they were going to do to him. They did not have a knowledge of that yet, that that's what he was talking about for himself. But he's introducing that thought about his own cross. And he's comparing the, the, the disciple. In this second time in the Gospel of Matthew, he brings in his foreshadowing of his own death. At first, he had just spoken about being taken from them. The first time he mentioned this, but now he mentions the cross. And he says, in order to be worthy of me, you must take up his cross and you must follow after him. And if you don't, then you are not worthy of me, is what Jesus is saying. This is bearing the cross. This is to follow after Jesus. This is to bear the persecution and the suffering and the afflictions and the trials and the, the struggles. That's what it is to, to take up Christ's cross. We follow after Jesus. To bear a cross to follow after Him. A Christian who says, we don't need the cross. We don't need, we don't need that kind of talk in our day and age. A person who is not willing to bear the cross of Christ is not going to be willing to truly follow Christ and they are completely missing the mark of what Jesus was trying to explain to them. 
Again, this all goes back to the supreme love that they're supposed to have for Him over everything else. Again, as the days would go by, the months would pass, the disciples would become further more aware of what Jesus was talking about. I imagine when Jesus finally did go to the cross, many of these conversations that Jesus had with his disciples prior to them fully understanding probably came back to the forefront of their mind. Because remember, when the cross came, there was not a disciple to be found at the crucifixion except for John. And the other person that was at the foot of the cross that was in support of who Jesus was, was Mary. All the other disciples were gone. None of them were there at the cross. They all fled in different directions because they were afraid there for their own life. Jesus here is speaking of the cross in which he would die. If a person is to follow Christ, it may mean they do not escape death. It might mean that, and he says, look what he says, that Uh, He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Even if a person escapes death by giving up Christ, and even if this life continues, what he truly is losing, although he's quote-unquote gaining life, he's actually losing life. It's quite a, a, a statement that he's making here. To gain the temporary at the expense of the eternal is a loss. So if a man spares his life and says, I want want my life spared and all I have to do to spare my life is just deny the cross, deny Christ, and my earthly life will be spared. He's not actually gaining, he's actually losing. We should never seek to gain temporal at the expense of the eternal. On the other hand, he who loses his life for the sake of Christ is worthy of him. In the very highest sense, finds true life. True life is eternal life. We're all living right now. We have an earthly existence. existence. We have a human existence. But real life, real living, is eternal life. It's not the temporal nature of, these, of this life. It's not the temporal nature of these bodies. Yet it is he who makes the wisest choice, who lays down his life for Christ, and finds true life in Jesus. Now, the cross was a sign of rejection. The cross was a sign of hatred. Ultimately, the cross was a sign of death. Uh, Later in our studies, when we come to Matthew 16, Jesus is going to mention this again. I invite you to turn over there for just a minute. Uh, Look at Matthew 16 and look at verse number 24. This is not the, in, in Matthew 10, this is not the first, this is not the only time Jesus mentions this cross bearing. Matthew 16, verse 24, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain 
the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus was telling his disciples, just as I'm going to be rejected, just as I'm going to suffer, and just as I'm going to die for the mission in which the Father has sent me to do, the disciples also should deny themselves. They should expect not only rejection, but they should expect suffering. Ultimately, which will end up, they will follow him ultimately to glory. Self-denial is very difficult. Denying yourself of even just temporal wants and temporal needs is difficult. Just try to deny yourself, and I'm not trying to make this so simplistic, but just try to deny yourself something you enjoy eating. Okay? Just tell yourself, start tomorrow and wake up tomorrow and say, today I'm going to deny myself that one thing that I so enjoy eating and I'm going to do everything I can to deny the satisfaction of that. Something so simple, we should say, well, that's no problem. It's actually harder than you think. What Jesus was actually saying was not just deny yourself of one thing, one temporal thing. He said, you're to deny yourself the totality of who you are in everything. You should put yourself in second and Christ should have the supreme position so that everything you're doing is for the glory of Jesus Christ. And by doing that, you are going to suffer rejection. You are going to suffer persecution. And you might even, he tells his disciples, you might even experience death. Now, in Matthew 16, Jesus was not ready to announce to his disciples, by the way, men, you're going to die for my sake. If he would have told them that at the very opening time when he pulled them aside the first time as the disciples, they would have not been able to handle that. But as he continued to reveal himself and show more and more about who he was, he began to teach them more about who this is. This save life and lose life, this is that paradox that by participating in Christ and by participating in his death and his burial and his resurrection, we die to ourselves, we die to our own sin, and we are supposed to die to this world. That one of the great questions of, that I was ever asked personally, and it's, it has stuck with me all these years, and I might ask myself this every single day, is when did I die to self? And the, 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 the answer to that question is interesting because if I ask you that, can you answer that question? When did you actually die to yourself? Because I don't think this is something that just randomly happens. I think it's an act of the will. I think it's an act of understanding that I am truly going to deny myself the worldly things that are so drawing me in. My sin, my pride, my wants, my desires. And I'm truly going to die to myself. And I'm going to make Christ first. Would you be willing to bear that cross? Would you be willing to bear that rejection? There again in verse, in verse 26 of Matthew 16, I mean, we're kind of expounding this. He said, what's a man profit if he gained the whole world and loses his own soul? These, Jesus, these are, these are rhetorical questions that are meant to be answered in the negative. 
He's basically telling them there's absolutely nothing in this material world that can compare to your salvation. There is nothing that is greater or more secure in this world. Your great security, your great hope, your great everlasting hope isn't found in me, he's saying. It's found in Christ. And by telling them that this is where if you're looking to find your life here, ultimately you're going to lose the most important life. But if you lose your life here, you lose the temporal things, you deny yourself, you give up your rights, you give up those things for my sake, you will find the real life. You're going to find eternal life. So Jesus in this higher degree begins to tell them that sooner or later, one day, even though you suffer for my sake, even though you suffer in this life, one day everything will be seen and my glory will be revealed to you. In the final few verses, Jesus then begins to tell the disciples specifically about uh, how they will be received and how they should respond. And he says, He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Uh, Jesus, in the context here, is talking about the, the communion that exists between himself and his disciples. Uh, these words are, of course, in their true context. They're especially true of the apostles as they're being sent out uh, for a hearer to receive the twelve. To receive the message of the twelve is to ultimately receive, Lord Je- receive the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So if they receive you and they receive your message, they're ultimately receiving me. Is what Jesus is getting to and getting across here. That is one of the the great tests that they would know. Are you being received? And if you are, they're receiving me. But Jesus also, in verse 41, describes them as a prophet. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. In other words, they should be receiving you as a prophet, uh, not just a mere man, but as a prophet of God. And as a prophet of God, the same reward that God gives to prophets and righteous men, he will give to those who receive those prophets or those righteous men. A prophet's reward must have been something pretty special because he said those who receive the prophet's words are going to receive the same reward. Now what's interesting is we're not told exactly what that reward is, but he said if a man receives the prophet's words, they're receiving Christ, and they receive the prophet's reward. The prophet was one who was sent as an ambassador, as one who was sent by the Lord himself. He will receive or he will reward the receiver in the same way that the prophet was going to be rewarded. To receive could have meant in Jesus' day and even in our time here, he says, shall I receive a prophet's reward? He that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of water, a cup of cold water only in the name of the disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. 
Something so simple as a cup of cold water. Now, the little ones there is an interesting phraseology because he's, he's talking not only about the disciples, but he's talking about even the least of the disciples. Even the smallest of the disciples, the, the least of who they are. The very least amount of kindness shown to them will be paid back in good. There is this principle here that to simply give a cup of cold water will receive a reward. You can see that Jesus is emphasizing here this love that should be demonstrated towards these prophets, these apostles who are going out and are speaking for Christ's sake and for His glory. Really what Jesus in these passages is telling us is in order to be worthy of Him, really the principle and the main teaching of this tonight, we could have simplified this and then could just said it this way, is that a true follower, a disciple of Christ, loves Christ above all others. Loves Christ above all other things. Loves Christ more than the things of this world. Loves Christ such to a, such a point that they're willing to suffer rejection. They're willing to suffer. They're willing to even suffer martyrdom if that's what God's will is for them. We are reminded that these apostles, remember, they were sent out. We learned at the very beginning of chapter 10 that the disciples were sent out with the authority. They were sent out with the power to heal, the power to cast out, and they were sent in the authority so that their words that were being spoken were words that were to be received and believed. You realize that the apostles' words and the apostles' doctrine is the same doctrine that we preach and proclaim today. There is not a new doctrine that happened between the time Jesus said the disciples were going out with the apostolic message. That's what we're still preaching. That's what we're still proclaiming. We're still proclaiming the message that Jesus said. Those that would receive the message of the apostles, they weren't just receiving the apostles. Most importantly, they were receiving Christ himself. Many a man will try to figure out, how can I be worthy of Christ? How can I be worthy of Him? Jesus in this passage says, Here's our, here are the things that make you worthy of Me. The things that we think would not be there. Loving father or mother more. You're not worthy of Me if you love them more. If you love your son or your daughter more than Me, you're not worthy of Me. And if you don't take up His cross, you're not worthy of Me. It's a stirring challenge. It's stirring to think about, again, when did I die to myself? When did I, when did I give up and say everything that I'm going to do is for Christ, my love for Christ supremely? Loving Him more than anything else. Dying to the things of this world. Denying myself the things that so easily distract me and so easily draw me away. Do we supremely love Christ the way we should? We must willingly embrace 
and endure the cost of following Christ. Enduring and being willing. I've heard this past week two or three missionaries who in the midst of what's going on there in the Ukraine have said those exact words. Is that the suffering and the fear and what we're going through now is nothing to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed one day when we see Jesus. There are people that are asking these missionaries, don't you want to leave? And they're saying, no, this is where God's called us. They're telling them they're in bunkers. They're telling them they're underground. Some of them are not underground. Some of them are, some of them are, are video, they're, they are videoing missiles and bombs being dropped right outside their window. And they're saying, we are exactly where God wants us to be. We have no desire to leave. This is where God has sent us. That really is, a, is really humbling to think about. That they are willing to suffer and they're willing to stay and even give up their life if that be the case. Now, I know directly this is not a direct persecution because they're Christians. But as I've said, and I think the Bible declares, that day is coming when we will, maybe not in our lifetime, but in this nation, suffer severe persecution for our faith. Would we be willing to endure that? These apostles were going out without really fully understanding all that they were going to endure and all that they would have to embrace. But we are told to count the cost. To be worthy of Christ is to love Him above all others and to love Him more than anything else. I hope that will challenge us tonight. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. And Lord, we are so grateful for the gift of salvation. We are so grateful for the love that you've shown to us first because we know that left to ourselves, we would have never loved you. Thank you for calling us out of the darkness into the marvelous light through the gospel. And Father, may we be challenged by what we've heard tonight. May we be challenged to ask ourselves that crucial question, when did I die to myself? Am I willing to embrace and endure the cross? Am I willing to stand when no one else will stand? Will I love the Lord Jesus Christ supremely above everything and everyone else? Lord, I pray that the Spirit would point these things out in our life tonight, that we would see where we might be failing in this. And Lord, we are grateful. We are grateful that even when we are not always what we're supposed to be and we don't always do the things we are supposed to do, you are a loving and merciful God. But we, may we never leave, use that as an excuse to be negligent to our faith. May we never use that to shun our responsibilities of bearing the cross of Christ to maybe even suffer rejection from our own family, to maybe even find that it causes division in our own homes. May we not shy away, but may we endure the cost. Father, we do thank you for this time. 
I pray that you'd bless us now as we leave here in just a moment. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and finish with the hymn on three.